Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. I am Audrey Rinlisbacher, founder of The Mission Driven Mom and author of The Mission Driven Life. I'm sorry I missed all of you last week. As some of you may know, we have an event coming up October 19th in Provo, Utah called the MDM Celebration Event. And the theme of that event is Mothers of Discernment. And we're going to spend the day talking about judgment and indoctrination and tools for staying informed and building a family culture and personal revelation. We're going to do a word study. We're going to talk about principles of discernment, all these awesome things. And then that evening, we're going to do an award ceremony. Since we've just been at this for a year, we have only graduates this year from level one. The women who have finished level one will receive their certificate on stage and be highlighted and we'll hear from some of the students and it's going to be an amazing day. And as part of that um, experience, we're going to do a couple pretty cool things. One is that we're printing a hard copy of the book. Now people have been asking about this for a while and it's funny because I went back to just kind of do some simple edits and realized that in the year and a half since I originally wrote it, I've really come to understand the laws on a deeper level, teaching them, writing about them, and utilizing them in the academy has really brought them even more to life. And so it's been um, a bit a bit of an extensive rewrite, moving content around and giving some better, clearer examples. And in fact, the 12 characteristics of true principles that I'm going to go over today has made its way into the new um, copy of the book. So that's pretty cool. And, um, so that's why I missed you last week because I, um, trying to do it all and be a good mom in the meantime. And, um, with my daughter's wedding a couple weeks ago and just everything that's going on, I just didn't seem to be able to pull it off. I'm still not done with the edit, but we're keeping our fingers crossed that we'll have a hard copy there. We're about 95% sure we can pull it off. If for some reason we can't, then we will make sure to get those copies out to everybody that wants them. And um, another cool thing that we're doing is printing up some bookmarks. One of them is the Seven Laws of Life Mission, which people will receive when they purchase a copy of the book. Um, Another one is one that you receive when you uh, become a Level 1 Academy member. And one side of that bookmark has the 12 characteristics of true principles. The other side has the five types of questions. And at the event, you'll receive copies of those bookmarks as well as a branded journal for yourself to use during the day for discernment and just really incredible things going on, dinners included, and just there'll be some amazing, amazing women there. We're going to do a flash sale on the Academy this weekend. I mean, not on the Academy, on the event this weekend. So watch out for that. And um, if you have a family um, member or a friend who is coming to the event or is in the Academy, they'll have a code for you too. Those will all be coming out this week to give you some discounts if you're still pondering attending that event. We would so love to see your beautiful face there. But that is what's coming up, what you can look forward to. So 
anyway, so excited you've joined me today. We're going to go over the 12 characteristics of true principles. Now, this is this was a work in progress um, several years ago for me because I had already been turned on to natural law and was very excited about that and had started teaching about that and kind of researching it. And of course, principles, first principles, all that stuff. And um, if you haven't listened to those podcasts, you probably want to go back to that Introduction to Principles three-part series. I think I quickly mentioned the 12 characteristics, but today we're going to hear some examples of each of them. I wanted to understand better as I was studying principles, what, how, could, how you could know, what would be a gauge to helping any of us understand what makes something a true principle. And eventually this kind of came to the foreground. I saw some similarities and descriptions of principles and that kind of thing um, it, from different authors. And then I just kind of dove into some of these other works. I analyzed and pondered it. I even looked at scripture and this kind of came together on the speaking page of the Mission Driven Mom site. Several years ago, I spoke in an educational event and it's recorded and on YouTube and I talked about 11 and said, I wish I could find the 12th. And I did. Um, 12 is a good number. So 12 characteristics of true principles is where it landed. And it's been great. I'm going to go through each one of these and give you a little story or a little example to help you understand it a little bit better. Now, the first characteristic of a true principle is it is a foundational idea. I'm not going to get too heavy into this one because that intro to principle series will give you a better idea of the distinctions between natural law and first principles and principles themselves. The important thing to understand about a principle being a foundational idea is that it is not the actual action that you're going to take. So it's the difference between what I'm now going to do and the idea that helps me know what to do. So it's, for example, the way that you might think about it is the principle helps you know what you need to do, but then you need to figure out how you're going to do it. So the principle is the what and the application is the how. Now the natural law and the first principle, especially the first principle usually, is your why. And in a religious context, when it's doctrinal, and we'll talk about this a little bit at the um, MDM celebration event, because we're going to talk about indoctrination versus doctrination. Um, it would be a doctrine. The doctrine would be the first principle, and then the principle would follow from that. And I give some examples, I think, in those other podcasts about some first principles and then they would flow um, doctrinally. It would be things like, I am a child of God would be a first principle. What principles flow from that? That tells me what I need to do. Um, that means I'm, what are some principles? My spirit is eternal. That tells me, okay, um, I need to take good care. That tells me what I need to do. I need to feed my spirit because it's eternal. So how am I going to do that? Now that how is going to be the application. So when we say it's a foundational idea, we mean it's an idea. It's not the actual action. I'm not actually doing anything. I'm still talking in the realm of ideas when I'm talking about principles. They're still abstract. Only applications are really 
the real tangible things I'm doing in the real world. And that's the how. And there's a million ways that you could nurture your spirit. Okay, maybe not a million, but you know what I mean. And how I do that is the application for me. And there's so many different ways to do that. No right or wrong application as long as it is in harmony with the principles, which is why it's so fantastic to be principle-centered and why Jack Barzin said the only thing we're teaching anybody is a principle because that is what's universally applicable. It's still in the realm of ideas, but it's absolute, it's true, and it's giving, it's handing people truth that they can then say, okay, so how am I going to do this? Now, the second characteristic of a true principle is that it's true for all people all the time. Um, I do get into some of this in those other podcast series, but I'll give you uh, a simple example here. So um, I might have talked about this in a previous podcast. I couldn't remember, so I just put it down because it came to mind. Solon was, uh, he's about 600 BC in uh, Greece, Athens, and uh, Lycurgus was the leader at about the same time in Sparta. Solon is the leader in Athens. They're on the brink of civil war because there's really just a poor and a rich class. And they need a good um, negotiator. They need someone who both sides trust to come in and try to figure out how to keep them from just kind of imploding. And Solon is the guy that everybody trusts because of his internal integrity. And both sides can agree that he should step in and be the leader. So he does that and he puts in a handful of reforms. I'm going to read some of his reforms to you because they're principles. And um, they're principles that are still just as true today as they were then. Now, if you look in history, sometimes principles were applied to a certain group of people that those people saw as peers, uh, but the essential principle was still in place. It was still on the human heart. It was still in, in, inherent in human nature. People struggled sometimes to be able and willing to apply those principles to all people, even, out, even those outside of their class or group. But the principle itself was still there, which I think is really fascinating. Maybe you didn't always want to apply those principles to everybody, especially when we're talking about like governmental or economic or principles. Um, but they were still being talked about and they were still being implemented in my group because I knew that they were right. So he canceled debts. And a big part of that was that he made it illegal to borrow on the security of a person. So I could not um, give myself over to another human being as their slave by becoming an indentured kind of servant to them. And I couldn't do that with anybody else. You couldn't borrow on the security of a person and say, okay, now you give me money and this, my child will do these certain things for you. That one is super cool. Another one is standard weights and measures, a key economic principle that when there's stabilization in any society, um, always is the case as, as well as standard coinage. When it starts to lose its value, you know you're a declining society. There were really a lot better laws about women. For example, there was a law that if a, if a father died and there was only a girl to inherit the estate, then she was forced to marry a particular person and do some kind of intermarriage, I can't remember the details, to try to continue that inheritance in her father's name. And he made those kinds of marriages illegal. He made rape 
um, illegal, other things like that. And he made it legal for people to take legal action on their own behalf against someone else in their, in, in Athens so that citizens could make the government notice their personal rights and take things to court before a judge. What's, what you can do now um, with these set of reforms from Solon in 600 BC is compare them to 1800 years later in a completely different place in the world in England with the Magna Carta. And as you go through the grievances that the um, lords had with the king, you see many similarities in the kinds of laws and reforms that they wanted to have happen there. And of course, these people had no connection to each other. And of course, we didn't even have a resurgence of the readings of ancient Greece until a little after that. And so you see that these principles, first principles and principles are written on the heart. And they're true for all people all the time. You can go back to the writings of ancient Greece, um, of Mesopotamia, of, um, you know, Chinese cultures and Indian cultures and find um, principles like honoring your parents, loyalty to your spouse, keeping your promises, treating others as you'd be treated. And uh, you can see the consistency of those principles true for all people all the time. The third characteristic of true principles is that it increases freedom. Now, um, Principles increase freedom, not just for the individual, but for the society. You can see this when an individual becomes truly self-reliant. So when they take care of, of themselves, their personal needs and the needs of their own, you know, their children, then you can see how they're more free to, um, to have influence in their, in their community they have the inner discipline to take better care of those things that are that they are responsible for. They also, uh, and, and you can see how also as they are self-reliant, that the society is more free because there's less burden on other people to care for them. And so the more people you have in a society who are self-reliant and that have the personal freedom to pursue their leisure, you know, in their leisure time, those things that would make them even better people, that the society is more free as well. I'm going to read you a little bit of Bastia. This is from What is Seen, What is Not Seen. And uh, this is, again, where there's a harmony between morality and economics. So he's a... 1800s French economist, and he's amazing. And he says something really fascinating is happening in his society that happened in America too. It happens in other civilizations. People kept saying that you needed to spend in order to help the economy. And Bastet's like, no, 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 no. You don't need to spend to help the economy. You need to um, save. And he says, certainly there is a flagrant contradiction here between the moral idea and the economic idea. So then he goes through this whole explanation of these two brothers. Um, and it shows what would happen if one was a spender and one was a saver. What would happen to their individual personal freedom and to the economy in the society? And he goes on to show, I won't give you all of the, um, all of the, details of how he explains that but it's really awesome because he shows that the one brother who's a saver through saving um, 
and investing that savings has more money to give to help the society. He's more charitable. He gives more money to his friends and eventually he also has more money to spend. And so he purchases things and, and, and services businesses, not by always buying things from them, but by investing in them and helping them to grow. And then he does buy things in the economy. And then he also does help take care of others in the economy. It's just this beautiful example of that, that morality and economics, and that's how he's couching it, are in harmony with each other. In other words, true principles are just true principles. And if it's, if it's true for the individual, it's true in the greater economy. Individuals need to save, and so do governments, and so do um, businesses and other people in the society. And so um, I guess we shouldn't say governments should necessarily save. That's arguable. But the point being that as an economic principle, savings is critical. And so he says, things have been so admirably arranged by the divine inventor of the social order that in this, as in everything, political economy and morality, far from clashing, are in harmony so that the wisdom of the saver is not only more worthy, but even more profitable than the folly of the one that spends. And that's really such a cool, we could get into that in more detail on another podcast, but um, just that example that when individuals live principles personally, principle of saving and being self-reliant, they actually bring more societal freedom as well. They alleviate the burden of the less fortunate and they spur business on through their investing and, and all of that kind of cool stuff. The fourth characteristic of true principles is that they expand the mind. I'm going to give you a quick example from a book I love called Carry On Mr. Bowditch. Now this one um, says that as we understand and begin to live true principles, they have the ability to expand our minds. So um, this is this is the story of Nathaniel Bowditch. It's a true story, very worth reading with your children. And I don't have time to give you the whole background, but basically he's self-educated. He didn't have a lot of opportunities given to him. And um, he's a he's kind of become this brilliant navigator. He's really good at math. And so he follows that interest and he studies like crazy. He gives himself a real good solid liberal education in the classics and then he studies um, navigation. And so he's been on these ships for a while and he's kind of, you know, considered one of the leaders on the ship because he's educated now. And they have some, I have this one guy, especially who's kind of a troublemaker, but the men in general, there's definitely a huge class difference. There's the few individuals who kind of run the ship and then everybody else who's, um, comes from the poorer classes of society and hasn't had the privileges of education and, um, and don't see a lot of future for themselves and tend to get in more trouble. And he's especially thinking about this one particular man named Lem who causes trouble on the ship a lot and the captain's really frustrated and upset with him and, and you know gives him kind of capital punishment sometimes. And so um, Nat, they call him Nat in the book, Nathaniel, he says, it says, was there no way Nat wondered to keep the crew in a better frame of mind? So he's thinking about this and wondering what it is he could do. And so one day he goes down to the place where a bunch of them are gathered. And he says to everybody on the ship, is there any man here who'd like to be master of a ship someday? And one of the men speaks up and says, who wouldn't, sir? But what chance have we got? 
And then Nat says, the same chance I had. In case you want to know, I stopped school when I was 10. I've been sailing by ash breeze ever since. What I've learned, I've picked up here and there in my spare time. Now between here and Manila, we're going to have some spare time. Does anyone want to learn some navigation? And fortunately, these men, and this is a true story, it's pretty cool. They, these men take advantage of that. And they, um, they decide to attend these little classes that Nat holds. And he begins at the beginning and starts teaching them celestial navigation. They really try hard to learn what he's teaching them. They can see that an, an opportunity has been presented to them that isn't usually presented. And they're kind of bored on the ship anyway. So they sit and begin to, to listen and to learn. And then it says, the weeks passed and this man, Lem, had started attending the classes, and he still glowered and muttered, but he was not affecting the crew with his mood now. They were standing a little straighter and working a little more smartly. It did things to a man, Nat thought, to find out he had a brain. And you find this kind of thing all through different stories of people who finally have an opportunity to become educated and how it if. It, it frees them physically and mentally, but it expands the mind it, and, and it brings a, a newer level of confidence and ability to function better in the world and, and in kind of an internal peace that comes when you find and live true principles. The fifth one is that it enlightens the heart. A light goes on and our intentions and desires change when principles um, enlighten the heart. So a good example of this one is from the book Christie, which I think I've mentioned before. And this is one of the awesome books that's in the MDM Academy, one of my personal favorites. And she went to be a teacher in the Appalachian Mountains among some really, really poor people. And she's teaching school there. And in this section of the book, it's talking about the horrible, horrible smells. They have no personal hygiene. And it's just awful in the classroom, especially on warm days they don't know how to take care of themselves and they just don't have anything at all. But every day she looks clean. You know, she doesn't have the fanciest dresses, but they are pretty. She came from a, a good, you know, well-off home. And so she starts to make sure that every day she's very clean and she smells good and she's very well cared for. I mean, she was doing that anyway, but she pays particular attention and the girls especially start to notice this and they just think she's beyond beautiful. It's like a princess in the classroom and they want to be like her. Several of them want to kind of look like her and smell like her. And she uses that as an opportunity to teach them principles of hygiene. She prays for help in order to better understand how to help her be able to work with these children because she's so turned off by them because of how they smell and because of how they look, it's hard for her to really teach them properly. So she included hygiene and health lessons in every day's curriculum. And they start to want to take baths. They want to come over to the mission home and have her help them with grooming. They get cleaner. She brings perfume to the classroom and they use that uh, when they're not smelling as well. And eventually things begin to improve. And it's really cool because these principles of hygiene, but also the principles of love really start to take hold in the classroom and with Christy. And as the children's kind of the best comes out of them and they start to want to, to be better and care for themselves better. And they have this vision to aspire to through her, 
then as they both change, this love increases. And she says, she's not sure how much the smells abated. And, uh, and she, she said, the biggest thing was that as I came to know the children and to think of them as persons rather than names in my grade book, I forgot my reactions and began to love them. I suppose the principle was that the higher affection will always expel the lower whenever we give the higher affection sway. For me, it was letting love for the mountain children come in the front door while my preoccupation with the smells crept out the, out the back. So these principles of love and personal hygiene had a huge impact on her classroom. The children came to understand better how to really love themselves and care for themselves. And that, that made her respect them even more for the changes they wanted to make to themselves. And as she continued to pray for them and teach them principles, her love for them grew and their hearts were um, enlightened. The children's, you know, a new vision of what they could be enlightened their heart and her, her heart was lightened also as she came to love them more. Number six is enlarging the soul. And I want to give you an example of this from the book um, Anna Karenina. We uh, had a, this isn't in the academy in level one anyway, but just as kind of a little bonus experience, we took this chapter and we talked about forgiveness, which is talked about in the academy, because this is an incredible example of a principle that enlarges the soul. So Anna Karenina is married. She doesn't really like her husband. She never really loved him. He's quite a bit older. He's a little cold. He does love her, her, but their relationship really went south. Eventually she winds up in an affair and he knows about the affair and he doesn't want to cast her off. He's a, he's a good enough man that he is very hurt by her affair. But at that time and place, this is, this is in Russia, he knows that she will be cast out of all good society and will basically be ruined if he makes it public and if he divorces her. And so he doesn't give her a divorce even when she asks for it because he's trying to protect her. Anyway, <clears throat> she winds up pregnant with this other man's baby and the husband finds out about this and she is sick in bed and they've kind of been living separate lives. And finally, she calls her husband to her. She's kind of in this elevated spiritual state for a moment. She doesn't stay there long, but she thinks she's going to die. She's given birth to this baby and um, she's really sick and she thinks that she's going to die. So she calls her husband to her and begs him for forgiveness. She says, I, uh, there's another wood, woman in me and I am my real self now. I wasn't my real self before, but I am my real self now. And, and, and she says, these people are saying that you won't forgive me, but I know what kind of man you are and I know that you will. And, you know, she says, forgive me, forgive me. I'm terrible. Um, won't you forgive me? I, <clears throat> I know it can't be forgiven, but you're too good. And so... He feels this nervous agitation increasing and increasing. And what he didn't realize until this moment was that what he called this nervous agitation, these emotions in himself that he always tried to avoid were compassion and empathy that he had never really given way to. And he finally does that. He reached a point that he ceased to struggle with it. He suddenly felt that what he had regarded as nervous agitation was on the contrary, a blissful spiritual condition that gave him all at once a new happiness he had never known. He did not think that the Christian law that he had been all his life trying to follow enjoined on him to forgive and love his enemies, but a glad feeling of love and forgiveness 
for his enemies filled his heart. He knelt down and laying his head on the curve of her arm, which burned him with the fire through the sleeve, he sobbed like a child. She put her arm around his head and moved toward him. And, and she goes on to say, this is he, I knew he would forgive me and, and, and he's a saint. And then he goes on later on to say, I saw her and I forgave her and the happiness of forgiveness has revealed to me my duty. I forgive her completely. I would offer the other cheek. I would give my cloak if my coat was taken. I pray to God only not to take away from me the bliss of forgiveness. So Alexei's soul was really enlarged. There was more of him, more to him as he lived that principle of forgiveness. Deep joy and happiness that he'd never known before was made available to him through his forgiveness. And he experienced things he'd never experienced before. And, and great amounts of healing came into his heart and also his duty of what to do next and how to care for her and for her daughter. He had complete love for this daughter um, of this other man. Now, unfortunately, things unraveled because of Anna. She wouldn't tolerate Alexei's forgiveness, unfortunately. But in that moment of forgiveness, when those principles were being honored, this, this huge enlargement of the soul was the consequence. It was really beautiful. So that's the first six characteristics of true principles, and we are already out of time. So I'm going to do a part two next week with characteristics seven through 12 and go into detail on those, tell you some stories and some examples so you can better understand the 12 characteristics of true principles and use them as a gauge as you strive to become more principle-centered in your personal life, in your home, and in your community, and really become mission-driven moms. Thank you so much for joining me. If you do not have your own copy of uh, the free ebook, The Mission-Driven Life, head on over to themissiondrivenmom.com and grab your copy. And please, if this was helpful to you, share it out with your friends on social media, write us a review, and help us to grow as we strive to help you build mission-driven families and communities. See you next time.